Hey, everybody. I'm here with Jamie McCavity. Did I get that right? No. <laughs> Sorry, what is it? Jamie McAvity. Jamie McAvity. Jamie McAvity. It's only funny because you're a white man. If you were any other demographic, me mispronouncing your name over and over would probably not be so funny. <laughs> would probably not be funny. Jamie McAvity is a Capricorn born on January 3rd, 1985 on a snowy day in Houston, Texas. Jamie's family moved from Texas to the Northeast shortly after his birth. After college, he started his professional life as a proprietary trader on the floor of the NY Mercantile Exchange, trading energy derivatives. From there, he went on to build Knock, a technology company based in Seattle which was focused on the apartment industry. Today, he's back in Texas and works as the co-founder and CEO of Cormint, a Bitcoin mining company headquartered in Fort Stockton. So, Jamie, welcome to my podcast. Thank you for having me. First things first, show me your wallet right now. How much money do you have in Bitcoin? Because your friend told me you owned 4% of all the world's Bitcoin, which I just believed. Apparently, that wasn't true. Yeah, well, just for reference, 4% of all the world's Bitcoin as of today is worth $40 billion. So I think you would know if I own that much Bitcoin or I'd have to be keeping it a very, very good secret. So yeah, my friend was exaggerating, obviously. Technically right now, I don't own very much Bitcoin at all because I lent it to my company. One of the things my company does is we borrow Bitcoins from people who own Bitcoins, just the same way people would borrow dollars from a bank or from an investment fund. We use those Bitcoins to invest in Bitcoin mining infrastructure, which actually makes new Bitcoins. So almost all of my Bitcoin I do not own. It is a liability that my company owes back to me. So not much. Very interesting. Would you by any chance be a Batman villain in your free time? Is that what you do? I feel like the cartoon movie villain would own a lot of Bitcoin. Yeah, well, that is actually a reasonable supposition because Bitcoin is an excellent form of money for people who are concerned about the government confiscating their money. You know, most criminals do not have lots of money in a bank account. They don't own lots of stocks and bonds. They usually either have a lot of cash or maybe gold bars or they have cash-related businesses that they can launder money through. I'm not really sure, but no, I'm not a criminal. I'm a law-abiding citizen. My business is a lawful enterprise. We pay taxes and we apply with the various government agencies that regulate us. So no, I am not a Batman villain. Okay, just for the record, that was a joke. I'm not accusing Jamie of any criminal activity. <laughs> not at all. So you have cryptocurrency, which you've loaned to your company. Is it all Bitcoin? Is it a mix? Can you tell me about that? Yeah, I'm a cryptocurrency investor. I own a number of different cryptocurrencies, but the majority of my investments are in Bitcoin or in my company or other Bitcoin related things. But there are lots of different cryptocurrencies. They have different use cases. People spend a lot of time debating the merits of different cryptocurrencies. And one of the coolest things about cryptocurrency is that unlike startup companies where you know, there's probably hundreds of thousands, if not millions of startup companies all over the world, it's hard to really know what the market perceives 
of their value. Cryptocurrency, their core feature is that they're liquid. It's a transferable asset and it doesn't require an intermediary to transfer it. It can be transferred peer to peer. And that's the same as with Bitcoin and every other cryptocurrency. All you need is a cryptocurrency wallet and then you can transfer it. And so one of the biggest businesses in cryptocurrency is exchange where you can go and trade cryptocurrencies and every single day, 24 hours a day, internationally, you can see the price of any cryptocurrency worldwide. There's a whole industry around trading them, investing in them. There's lots of fund managers. There's lots of individuals participating. It's a very cool market and it's completely international. So it's a really exciting industry. Okay, I do want to ask you more questions about your story and your company. First, I want to know, what exactly is cryptocurrency? Why are there so many cryptocurrencies? And why do some of them have such funny names? There's Bitcoin. There's Dogecoin. Apparently, that was a serious thing. I looked at it on the internet. I thought it was a joke. No, people can buy things with it. Well, actually, Dogecoin was started as a joke by a developer named Jackson Palmer, and he just decided to make a digital currency out of thin air that was based on a meme of a Japanese dog that speaks very bad English. Then he launched it, and anybody can launch a cryptocurrency. There are hundreds of thousands of cryptocurrencies, and there's almost no barrier to launching. Creating one that's valuable is much, much harder. The vast majority of cryptocurrencies that have been created are worthless. I think what's happened in the cryptocurrency market is some people have been surprised by what different types of cryptocurrencies have been invented and then had staying power and been embraced by different investors or different users. And so a broad definition of cryptocurrency is it's software. It's called distributed software or distributed network. And what that means is that an unlimited number of participants are able to run the same exact software simultaneously. Most cryptocurrencies, once they are launched, they cannot be changed. The only way to change them is to get every user who's running the software to upgrade their software. And so these cryptocurrencies become monetary networks if they have monetary properties because they're transferable. Anybody can hold them. Anybody can download them. There's absolutely no barriers to entry. So depending on the characteristics of them, they will gain adoption as the different market participants say, okay, I think this is valuable and I'm going to use this to store value. Bitcoin was the first cryptocurrency that was launched and it is based on the premise of being a digitally scarce, some people call it digital gold type of application. You can send it, you can receive it, you can store it. There's no storage costs. You're not relying on a third party to store it for you. And so it's called a bearer asset. The difference between a bearer asset and a non-bearer asset is that stocks, for example, are not a bearer asset. Money that's in your bank is not a bearer asset. Cash is a bearer asset. The key difference is that whoever holds the asset controls it. In a bank, you're going through an intermediary. and You go to your bank and you say, I want to send this money to XYZ person. The bank most of the time approves the transaction. But historically, you know, there have been instances where a certain industry is, say, out of favor with the government or it is outright criminalized or the person commits a crime or has their money seized for some reason. And then they no longer have the ability to send their money. With cryptocurrency, as long as you retain control of the cryptographic keys which are used to send the funds, only you can send the funds. And the only way that someone can compel you to send the funds is if they use violence or they coerce you or they find access to your keys and they break the cryptographic keys. However, that's protected. It could be a password, it could be a pin. I would say it is analogous to gold because if you have a gold bar and it's in your safe, only you can control the movement of that gold, but it's digital. 
So if you wanted to send gold to your friend in Japan, you would need to find a secure transportation system. You probably would need to insure it. If you didn't know that person in Japan, let's say it wasn't your friend, let's say it was a business counterparty, they would then need to receive your gold and they would take it down to the local metallurgist and the metallurgist would test the purity and make sure that it is actual gold. And there's all this complexity in between. In these cryptocurrencies, they're based on cryptographic systems. So the ownership is proved using cryptography and any amount that is sent is instantly verifiable. It's impossible to duplicate transactions. And so this system, because of these monetary properties and the properties of these assets, has gained popularity amongst people who desire to hold those assets. A lot of people would say, oh, well, I don't really want to hold that asset because I like that my bank protects my money and I don't have to worry about it. That is a valid argument to say, I don't really want cryptocurrency. A valid counter argument would be, I'm a Canadian trucker and the government shut down my bank account when I protested against XYZ. Or I live in a country where there's a dictator and he seized the bank accounts of my family last year. Or we went and protested against X, Y, and Z thing and my funds got confiscated. And so there is a balance, a finite balance between the risks and the benefits of holding cryptocurrencies and using cryptocurrencies. Very interesting. I have many maintenance questions that I was going to ask you later on. We can just get some of them out of the way right now. Can you tax cryptocurrency? What can the government do with cryptocurrency? Is it regulated in any way? Or is it just this big black box? Like, what does the IRS do with cryptocurrency? You're smiling. I feel like you've got some thoughts on this. Tell me, Jamie. Yes, cryptocurrency is taxable. Cryptocurrency transactions are taxable. It is the same thing as a cash transaction where if you go and buy a car and you pay the seller of the car cash, technically the seller of that car has a requirement to report the sale of that asset. Cryptocurrency is no different. If you transact in cryptocurrency as a United States citizen, you must report it on your taxes. If you don't and the government finds that out, you are breaking the law. You're committing tax evasion or tax avoidance, depending on what exactly you do. And as far as the regulatory environment, Bitcoin is regulated as a commodity, which in that regard, it's relatively unique. The other classification, which is actually the subject of ongoing legal disputes between a number of cryptocurrencies and their teams and the SEC, is whether or not these cryptocurrencies are securities. And the definition loosely of a security is an asset that is sold by a centralized party or organization to investors with the expectation that the efforts of the group that created the asset is going to work to deliver a profit to those investors. There's a securities test called the Howey test, and a bunch of firms are fighting the SEC about whether or not their particular cryptocurrency is a security. Bitcoin is not a security because nobody ever created Bitcoin and then sold it to investors with the expectation of a profit based on their efforts. And so Bitcoin is somewhat unique in that it is classified as a commodity. And I guess over the next couple of years, we'll come to find out if other cryptocurrencies are securities or commodities or property or currency. It's a developing asset class. And so the regulatory environment is relatively uncertain at this point. And there's a whole bunch of different regulatory aspects, but I won't get into it. Those are the two main distinctions. You're 15 minutes in and the question list I had just exploded. Oh my gosh. I want to get more background in what cryptocurrency is and what Bitcoin is specifically. But just, this is a very foreign concept to me. I watched all of the videos of you online, by the way, and I have to say I am even more confused than I was before. Actually, okay, let's just take a step back. 
Why is cryptocurrency so hard for people to understand? I've met a good number of people who are very intelligent, very sharp, work in finance, work in economics that are a bit older, right? They're maybe in their 50s or 60s. They don't want to get involved with cryptocurrency at all. They have no idea what it is. These are people who graduated from top universities who are very well educated. Why is it such an impossible concept for people just to grasp? Yeah, that's a great question. If you think about it, there's a famous analogy that's used to describe this situation. And the scenario is a man asks a fish, what is it like living in water? And the fish says, well, what's water? The analogy is meant to convey that once you become accustomed to a certain aspect of your life that you interact with on a day-to-day -day basis, if you're born into that system, the notion of its existence becomes something that you take for granted. If I were to ask you, how does money work? How are dollars created? Are dollars backed by anything? Who controls the supply of dollars? How are the exchange rates determined between dollars and euros and yen and all of these different currencies worldwide? I suspect, unless you are a currencies trader, you might not have a very good understanding of those things. You just know that you can transact in the entire United States economy using dollars. And the tricky part about learning Bitcoin, and I would say a critical part of the journey of every experienced Bitcoiner is first a broader study of money. It goes all the way back to the early days of modern civilization where different ancient peoples were using seashells or special stones or necklaces or beads, gold coins, silver coins. All of these different things throughout history developed monetary properties and because of those monetary properties, the different monies that existed and grew throughout the history of our species had stronger or weaker network effects. And gold was the most popular and most commonly used money before the invention of paper money and banking and banknotes. Even though gold is still a very valuable asset or currency, gold is technically a commodity. All the world's gold is worth about 12 trillion. It also has some industrial uses and obviously people like gold jewelry. Gold was eventually displaced by bank money and digital money. And it was largely displaced because of the speed and the ease where you could have bank notes. They could be divided into coins. It was very easy to do transactions and build an economy around bank notes because the idea of a gold coin and going and dividing up little chunks of gold to buy your goods was, you can imagine, it's a lot more cumbersome than going and using paper bank notes. For a long time, all of money in banks was backed by gold. In the 1960s, somewhat suddenly, countries started to go off the gold standard. They no longer backed their currencies with gold. That effectively removed the cap on the amount of new money that could be created by world governments. And a lot of people will say this is the reason why we have inflation today. This is why there's wealth inequality and income inequality. Having money backed by a scarce asset that is very difficult to produce is an important characteristic of money. It's called sound money. Sound money means that it's very hard to create. And the reason why gold was used as money and why it gained so much popularity was because of those properties. Gold is very difficult to create. It's very difficult to find. There have been a number of gold rushes throughout history where people discovered large deposits of gold and then they moved their whole life over to try and dig up a bunch of gold. Through that history of money lens, it becomes a lot easier to understand okay, hey, wait a minute, you know, this, this sort of makes sense. This seems like a very logical way to approach the evolution of money. Obviously, it's extremely controversial. It's backed by the state of the art in cryptographic encryption. Even a person like me who's worked in cryptocurrency for seven years, I would have a tough time articulating that to you. And even if I did, you'd probably be like, well, that's way over my head. 
Basically, the encryption that creates the security of the Bitcoin network is effectively impossible to break. And so it uses cutting edge mathematics and cryptography to secure a payments network. And the payments network is designed to emulate the strongest possible monetary properties, freedoms, and liberties to its users. It competes with all other forms of money effectively on those merits. Very interesting, right? Some follow-up questions on that. But before, let's say we were sitting here with someone in their 50s or 60s who, you know, they have an iPhone, they have a computer, they have a bank account that they can access virtually, they've bought things online. How would you explain cryptocurrency to them? Maybe just a few sentences. What would you say? Let's just stick with Bitcoin because once you open up the door to lots of cryptocurrencies, then the explanation becomes a lot harder. So the core premise of Bitcoin is that it's a monetary network with a fixed supply and the fixed supply of money within the system can never be exceeded. The total amount of Bitcoin that will ever exist is 21 million Bitcoin. All that is required to use Bitcoin is an internet connection and a computer. It's a globally accessible software network that anyone can participate in. And because Bitcoin's supply is limited to 21 million and the supply of all other forms of government issued money is effectively unlimited and has been growing at a rate of about 6% every single year going back to the 1960s, the idea would be that if you buy Bitcoin and you can appreciate that it is a scarcer, harder form of money than any other type of money in the world, that you can custody it yourself on your person at all time. If you ever decide you want to leave this country or you want to send your money to another country, you alone can control that decision. The concept of that and the monetary properties of Bitcoin and its scarcity make a case for Bitcoin believers and for more and more people who are joining the Bitcoin network on a daily basis that this is a very, very safe, long-term store of value that has tremendous utility for a person. And so if I were going to approach a 60-year-old man, I would say, do you own any gold? And if they said, no, I don't own gold, I only like assets that have intrinsic value. Intrinsic value means it generates a, a cash flow. A rental property has intrinsic value because your renter pays your rent every month and it generates some yield on its value. Same thing with a bond. A bond, you lend money to someone, it generates a return in the form of interest to you that has an intrinsic value. If someone says, I only buy assets with intrinsic value, it's going to be very difficult to convince them that Bitcoin is a good investment. However, most people who are over the age of 60, if they have an investment portfolio in their retirement account, they have some amount of that retirement account in gold or in other commodities. It's usually somewhere between one and 5%. And so you would say, well, why do you own gold? And they would say, well, I like gold because the government can't create any more of it. And actually my gold bars are in a vault in Switzerland. If the hits the fan, then that person could say, well, don't worry, family, we're going to go to Switzerland and we're going to restart our life in Switzerland. And I wisely bought some gold bars in Switzerland and they're custodied by a Swiss bank. We can go get my gold bars and we can cash them in for Swiss francs and we can start our life over there. And you say, well, okay, you know, that's kind of a crazy, crazy emergency plan. How worried are you about that? And they say, well, you know, I'm not really that worried. I only have about 1% of my savings or 2% of my savings in gold bars. If that person, that 60 and older gentleman, has such an allocation to gold in their portfolio, then you could make the case to them, well, let's think about your plan there a little bit. Let's dive a little bit deeper. You're now trusting a Swiss bank account to hold those gold bars for you. What would happen if something happened to that bank? What would happen if the United States government compelled that Swiss bank 
to reveal the identities of all of the owners of the gold who live in the United States who have gold bars that are stored inside of your vaults. What happens if you can't get on a plane and get to Switzerland? What happens if uh, airline infrastructure is down and you really do have a problem? And so you can start to plant the seed of some scenarios in which this asset in their portfolio that has no counterparty risk and is completely uncorrelated with the United States economy and what's happening here on the ground, you could say, eh, it's not really as safe as you might think it is you should consider making a small investment in Bitcoin because if you value those properties in an investment and you would actually like to be able to control the destiny of your family and some portion of your savings in the event of a really catastrophic scenario, then Bitcoin is a non-sovereign asset. It's not connected to any single country or province. You can keep it on your person at all time. It can be stored very easily, very cheaply. It's extremely durable. You can store it in redundant ways. So if you lose access to it one way, you can restore it in a number of other ways. Now, admittedly, you do need to learn quite a bit in order to accomplish that. It has a real limitless design surface for protecting your assets and protecting your savings. I'll give you a cool example. There's a concept called a brain wallet, which is where you don't even actually own a physical device that stores your Bitcoin. Like a Bitcoin wallet looks like a small USB key. A brain wallet is where you just memorize a sequence of words in your mind. And those sequence of words can actually unlock the cryptographic key for a Bitcoin deposit somewhere else. So you don't even need to have a physical device. You could just memorize 24 words in your head. And then let's say you go to a border crossing and the border guard says, do you have any assets on you that you need to declare? If you have over $10,000 of money, you must declare it at the border here. And you say, no, of course I don't. The only way that they could compel you to reveal the contents of a brain wallet, I mean, they'd have to be a psychic. So there are ways of storing it cryptographically that are extremely safe, very, very difficult to detect. And yeah, for that case of say, I'm worried about the risk that I have to the United States economy. Let's say you own a few restaurants or you own a few coffee shops or you own a bunch of rental properties. If all of a sudden something bad happens to the United States economy, it would make sense for you to own a small amount of investments that are not correlated with what's happening here on the ground. We've talked about how people who own cryptocurrency regard the government with a deep sense of distrust and suspicion. Should I view people who own cryptocurrency with a sense of deep distrust and suspicion? It sounds like someone with cryptocurrency, if they wanted to, could literally just hop on a plane, leave their family and everything behind, and just disappear so easily without a trace, just gone. Government doesn't know, family doesn't know, their job doesn't know, and they could start a whole new life. Theoretically, anybody could do that, but it sounds like cryptocurrency makes that easier. Yes, it does. Do you think that's a bad thing? Yeah, I feel like that's not optimal if someone you're with could literally very easily decide within 30 seconds that they're going to go someplace and you'll never see them again. And okay, everybody has intrusive thoughts of what if I just left all this behind? What if I just moved to a new country? But there are many, many steps in place that you have to go through before you do that if you are a normal person. If you are in cryptocurrency, you don't have all of those steps. Oh my god, okay, tell me, if I had a lot of money in cryptocurrency and I decided that, you know, forget everything, forget everyone, forget my family, forget my job, forget my home, forget my dog, not forget my dog, even the scenario, we're going to bring the dog here. How easy would that be? Like, what steps would I follow? And also, how hard is it to bribe people with cryptocurrency? When we talk about physical assets... It's very serious. We're talking about potentially leaving a family behind and bribing people. I don't know why you're smiling. If you have cash, if you have gold, you can show that to people. They're like, oh, yeah, 
money. Thank you. How do you bribe someone with cryptocurrency? Do you just like show people your wallet? You're like, oh, haha, this is how much money I have in cryptocurrency. How does that work? So well, let's start with the first question. Yeah. Yes, technically, if you have all of your money in cryptocurrency and you don't own a house and you don't own physical assets that are within the jurisdiction of the United States, it is a lot easier for a husband or wife to decide I'm out of here and for that to be a relatively frictionless process. Now, I'm a libertarian. I don't think that property rights should be structured in such a way that they hinder a person's ability to act freely. But you are correct. Your, your premise is correct that a person whose wealth is largely stored in Bitcoin would be able to leave a country and start a new life in another country much more easily than a person who owns a large portfolio of properties and is married and those are marital assets and they're intending to get divorced. They would need to go through a divorce process and those marital assets might be split. And so to answer your question, yes, it would be easier. Bribing someone with Bitcoin is the same as bribing them with cash, with the exception that you're sending a transaction through the internet instead of handing them an envelope filled with $100 bills. As far as what are most bribes denominated in these days, I would say still 99% or more of bribes are denominated in cash. However, one of the problems with being bribed in cash is that if you don't invest that cash into assets, you're going to lose your purchasing power. The reason why a cheeseburger is three times as expensive today as it was 20 years ago is not because the value of meat has gone up is because the quantity of money in the economy has increased dramatically. And so with Bitcoin, you have an asset that you could theoretically receive a bribe in and it would hold its value much better than cash underneath your mattress. Gold is also a better currency to accept bribes than cash is. And so if you were to receive a bribe in Bitcoin, you would tell your briber, this is my Bitcoin address, send me some Bitcoin here. And you know, you need to have a computer and an internet connection. So there's a few more steps than just handing them an envelope of cash. But, you know, cash is king for bribing. That is still the dominant way that criminals and bribe recipients exchange value with each other. Oh, my God. So you're a libertarian. Again, I have some maintenance questions I want to ask you, but I feel like everyone I've met who works in cryptocurrency, who's involved in cryptocurrency, they are all libertarian. They all really hate the government. In fact, I would say within the first 30 minutes of meeting someone who works in cryptocurrency, I hate the government. I don't like the government. The government is just the worst. Anarchy in the UK, this is just what comes out of their mouth. It's just what they say. Chicken or the egg, what comes first? Is it like you work in cryptocurrency and you start hating the government more? Or do you hate the government so much that you go into cryptocurrency so they can't monitor your money? Like, what was it like for you? Did you start off with like a healthy level of distrust towards the government, get involved in cryptocurrency, and then your distrust and hatred of the government went way up? Was it just that you were like, you were already at the top and cryptocurrency was just a way to further remove yourself from the good old USA? Tell me about that. It's a great question. There are a lot of anarchists and libertarians who love Bitcoin and work on Bitcoin or store their value in Bitcoin. Personally, I'm not an anarchist and I do believe in government. Thankfully, in the United States, these states individually have a lot of rights against the federal government. They're able to protect their sovereignty. That's why living in Texas is very different than living in Washington state or Oregon Effectively, states across the United States are all competing, you could say, for citizens with each other, and they have different taxes, they have different local laws. As far as to the question of 
are all Bitcoiners, anarchists, and libertarians. I would say most Bitcoiners have a healthy mistrust of government. Personally, my mistrust of government has grown as I've gotten older, and I have viewed the implementation of what I consider to be reckless policies on the behalf of the government, whether that's the massive amount of federal deficit that we have on an annual basis. We are going further into debt as a country every single year. We are printing more money to attempt to escape that debt. We now have inflation emerging within our economy for the first time in decades. And as time has gone on, I have slowly lost trust in the ability of our institutions to make responsible choices and have strong governance of our federal system. But what I really believe in is that an empowered citizenry that is equally matched to fight against the government on things that they disagree with is ultimately a very healthy part of a functioning governance. Think about the founding of America. A bunch of pissed off settlers decided that they didn't want to pay their taxes and then they started a revolution against England. We were an English colony during that time, they were envisioning, okay, these are the things that we think would be important for us in establishing our own government. So they were coming out of an oppressive colonial structure, and they envisioned this new governance structure that worked much better based on what they thought. And in our founding ideology as a country, citizens and states were imbued with all of these great liberties that we were given. And I think that those great liberties that were granted upon the founding of the United States are really important pillars of governance. And so in a way, Bitcoin and the invention of Bitcoin and the right of United States citizens to use and hold Bitcoin is a way of claiming back some territory that has been ceded by the people in the favor of the government, where our federal electronic bank banking system. It's now very easy for funds to be confiscated, for transactions to be censored, and for the amount of money in the system to go up massively and the purchasing power of an individual saver to go down. And so with Bitcoin, there is a tool of resistance that ultimately, if I would say an ideal scenario would be the existence of this tool leads to a more responsible balance of power between people and the government. When did you last vote Like in your life? When was the last time you voted in an election? I voted last year. Was the last time you voted in a presidential election? 2012. What a very simple time that was for U.S. politics. It was a nice time. So you have always distrusted the government, and your distrust of the government has simply grown. When did that really start for you? Like, Was there an event where you were like, government, don't trust it? I can pinpoint various points throughout my journey in adulthood where things changed for me. Like a lot of people, I went through college as an idealistic, open-minded, left-leaning person, and I had never owned a business. And so the virtues of private property, capitalist economy were not really well known to me. And I was idealistic. As I learned more and more about our free market economy and our strong property laws and why those are important, as I started my first company and was taxed aggressively and I saw the deployment of those tax dollars in ways that I found to be objectionable, I became much more moderate. And so I moved from left-leaning idealist to more moderate. And then really in COVID was when I became conservative. I simultaneously became socially conservative in my own life, just in terms of the way that I want to live and what I want to do. Particularly the government's approach to COVID 
the way that they locked people down, different states locked down schools and homes and access to public places for varying amounts of time. I was in New York during COVID where I lost my rights to enter some businesses until I presented a vaccine card. I was one of the people who got COVID pretty early on, and then I tested for the antibodies. So I elected to not get vaccinated, and I never actually had a symptomatic infection of COVID. I really did not believe what the government was saying. I have friends who lost their jobs. I have friends who were ostracized from their communities. I personally had some friendships that were affected by the choices that I made with my own health. Around that time, the government also started talking about posing some punitive legislation on Bitcoin and Bitcoin mining and generally having the Biden administration as a generally confrontational stance towards our industry. I'm a single issue voter on that right now because I've invested quite a bit of my wealth into my business and my life. You know, I've committed my life and my capital to this business. And I think it's a really bad precedent for the government to take those actions and revoke all those civil liberties from people during that time, even under the guise of an emergency. Very interesting. So it sounds like COVID radicalized you. It sounds like a loss of control, right? You couldn't go places. You had to show proof of a vaccine. Did you start to really get invested in cryptocurrency during this time? Was it about getting control back? Was there a sense of like, I'm so sick of the government telling me what to do? Was that what forced you into it? No, I wouldn't say so. I will confess the reason why I bought Bitcoin when I did was because I made an evaluation of it as an investment. And I thought that it had the potential to be a really good investment at the time when I bought it. And this is actually something that happens to a lot of people when they start to become a Bitcoin investor, it changes you. It forces you to grow and learn, and you have to develop an understanding of all of these different disciplines to really feel comfortable as a Bitcoin holder. Keep in mind, I bought my first Bitcoins in 2013. During the first four or five years that I owned Bitcoin, I experienced two drawdowns of the investment value that were greater than 80%. And a lot of people, they buy a little bit of Bitcoin and then that happens to them and they say, screw this, I'm not going to stick around for this. But what happens to true Bitcoin believers is they continue to learn during that time. They investigate deeper into their investment hypothesis and it slowly changes you. And where I am now, I would say in my journey is Bitcoin has shaped a huge part of my political outlook. It has shaped a huge part of my outlook and understanding of monetary policy. I think it's also made me more conservative and traditional on a social perspective. But the most important thing that I would have to say about it, and I think the most important view that I have, is not one that says, let's tear down the government. I'm an anarchist. Government is evil. It is the view that the separation of money and state is the way that things were during times of prosperity. During times of great prosperity, economic prosperity, typically money was separated from the state. There are obviously a few exceptions, but generally speaking, the less intervention that a government has made into money supply and monetary policy, the more general prosperity that there has been. I believe that the separation of money and state due to a technological innovation like Bitcoin is inevitable. This is where the species is going to end up in terms of how money works and how we use money. Money is just a tool for humans to trade amongst one another. Money is one half of all transactions in the economy. One half is money, the other half is goods and services. So this huge part of the economy is money. And the separation of money and state is a better system that produces net better outcomes for more people. And so I 
strongly believe that if the United States is going to remain the leader of the free world and is going to want to still credibly say, hey, you entrepreneur, immigrant from foreign country, person who was born here, whatever, if you want the best opportunity to have social mobility and the highest chance of prosperity and the highest likelihood of raising a family and living the American dream and realizing that here, that a non-sovereign money that is available to all people and is a fundamental right, I think that is the correct end state. And if that doesn't happen here, I think that will be a loss for the country and other states, other governments that afford that right to their citizens, they will end up outcompeting the United States on attracting people. The same way that Texas and Florida have had huge inflows of people relocating to live there during the last three or four years, especially in response to some crazy policies from states like New York and California and Washington. The same way that people have voted with their feet and relocated to other states, I think people will vote with their feet and move to other countries that offer them more opportunity to participate in an open, international, global economy with a single currency that's not controlled by a single government or country. What countries do you think people are going to want to move to? Which countries are ahead of the United States in terms of the cryptocurrency learning curve? If you say China, I'm going to scream. I'm not going to say China. China is actually not doing a very good job at this. China is a pretty restrictive place to live. They have capital controls. The Chinese government restricts what their people can invest in. They limit the number of properties that Chinese people can own outside of China. And China famously banned Bitcoin mining and has banned Bitcoin a number of times over the last seven or eight years. So it's not China. Dubai has a pretty progressive cryptocurrency regulatory framework. Singapore has a pretty progressive regulatory framework for cryptocurrency. Most third world countries don't have a regulatory framework for cryptocurrency, which is great. That's effectively a good regulatory framework because crypto is a self-regulating system. It's regulated by cryptography. Let me highlight one amazing example. And this is a combination of good governance and embracing Bitcoin. El Salvador was very recently one of the most dangerous countries in the world. And I believe as of a few months ago, it is one of the safest countries in North America. It's safer than the United States now. They elected a president, a man named Nayib Bukele, and he implemented policies that opened the country to Bitcoin innovators he created a few economic zones that had very favorable regulation and tax treatment for Bitcoin holders and Bitcoin companies. And at the same time, he cracked down ruthlessly on a lot of the gangs who were creating havoc in the country. And just through those two policies, now all of a sudden, it's an attractive tourist destination. There are businesses locating there. People are buying vacation homes. There's tourism. All of this stuff is flourishing and it's just a simple change in policy and a little bit of hard work that flipped things around for them very, very suddenly. And this is the same story of Dubai. This is the same story of Singapore. Those two countries have very progressive, open, common sense regulatory frameworks that attract business, attract residents. And because of that, these places are now financial centers of the entire international financial community. And so I do believe that governments compete for people. And I think that process, it does take time for it to play out. But ultimately, the United States should be a leader in good governance to keep people here and to keep our reputation and standard as the leader of the free world. Very interesting. Billion different ways we could take this conversation. Before we move in any direction in terms of what countries are leading in Bitcoin and cryptocurrency and what's going to happen and what's going to happen to us, I think we should help set the stage for my listeners and also for me. So, Maintenance questions. Is Bitcoin taxable? Yes. 
Do you pay your taxes? Yes. Is Bitcoin anonymous? It can be, but most Bitcoin is connected to the identity of a person, and Bitcoin is a fully transparent system. The system just contains cryptographic addresses, but companies who allow users to exchange dollars into Bitcoin, they legally have an obligation to record the identity of the person who buys it. And then if that person moves the Bitcoin off of that platform, if that company is subpoenaed or if they're required to submit reports of their user activity to the government, then the government will forever be able to trace the flow of those funds. So Bitcoin is simultaneously fully transparent, but also traceable once a user was linked to a cryptographic address within the system. people who like cryptocurrency don't like rules. The rule of my podcast is you drink a latte. Now it's like 5 p.m. Just what two sips. It's a matcha latte. Oh my god, am I a screw up? This latte is too sweet and it has milk in it and I had one sip but I did it under extreme protest. You didn't tell me you were lactose intolerant. I take my guests very seriously. You didn't say non-dairy. Did you say non-dairy? I told you almond milk. What I told you was that I just want a straight a straight matcha, not a matcha latte. No one has suffered as this guy has suffered right now. It's okay. I'm still happy to be here. How do you sell it? So if you have money in Bitcoin and you want to sell it and you're escaping your family moving to another country, how do you sell it? So there are a number of exchanges that have 24-7 liquidity and accessibility. There are a number of platforms and exchanges where you can sell Bitcoin and have the dollars wired to your bank account. You could also meet a person and do an in-person transaction where they give you cash and you send them Bitcoin. just want to clarify, most people are not using Bitcoin to run away from their families. In fact, I believe that Bitcoin makes families stronger. It builds stronger men with good conservative family-oriented values. So I reject the notion that this is enabling men to flee from their families. However, in the event that you did want to hide funds from somebody, whether that would be a government or a business partner or a spouse or really anybody, storing those funds in Bitcoin is a useful way to do that, just like doing it with cash is a useful way to do it. It's a bearer asset, so it is outside of the reach of seizure by government authorities. Very interesting. So where is it stored? By the way, if you're selling it and someone is just giving you cash, what's going to stop them from just taking it and not giving you the cash? What do you do if that happens? What do you do if, if you do any transaction for cash and that happens? You are trusting that the first person who exchanges a good or a service for some kind of monetary instrument is going to fulfill their end of the bargain. Think about how prevalent credit card fraud is, where a person goes and buys something at a store with a credit card. I don't think that's a risk that is unique to Bitcoin. That's a risk that exists in all forms of transactions, and in some cases with credit cards is even a greater risk due to the, the long nature of the actual settlement of a credit card transaction. How much of a nightmare is it if you lose Bitcoin? Also, how do you lose Bitcoin? So you could get hacked if your Bitcoin is stored in an insecure way. For example, there are a number of different Bitcoin wallet softwares that you can just go and download on the internet, and you could install them on your computer, if your computer isn't password protected or your Wi-Fi or internet situation is not secure, then a relatively talented hacker could break into your computer 
find your Bitcoin wallet, send your Bitcoin to their address, and it's an irreversible transaction, you would lose it. Another way that you could lose your Bitcoin is someone could physically steal a device that contains your Bitcoin and then send it to their own wallet or just keep that device. There are ways to recover Bitcoin if you lose physical access to it, but once a Bitcoin transaction is sent digitally on the internet, it's an irreversible transaction. The analogy for that would be if you had bars of gold in a safe in your house and someone broke into your house and took the bars of gold, that is not a reversible transaction. And that is definitely one of the scarier parts of owning cryptocurrency versus having money in a bank, where even if your bank goes under, the FDIC will make the depositors whole. When Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank went under last year, the FDIC made those depositors whole. And so that guarantee that the government will be there to backstop your bank in the event that it goes under is definitely something that does not exist within Bitcoin. Once funds are moved, all transactions are irreversible. It was at South by last year during the SVB bank collapse, and many people were very angry. In fact, I have a video on my phone of a woman screaming at two young founders about everything. What you're saying. Like, you're, you are at risk. Like, I don't know why you think you're going to be okay. You're not going to be okay. And the reason that you're not going to be okay is that all those companies, the 50% of venture-backed startups that have money at SVB, all have to go to their VCs and ask for more money. So, no, if you're trying to raise your money, it's not like, oh, yeah, we have more money. All of our money have to go to like, make sure that the existing companies, you just lost millions. That was very intense. Have you ever been hacked? And what do you do? And if someone gets hacked, what would you tell them to do? So I have never personally lost cryptocurrency or Bitcoin from somebody hacking a computer of mine. I have had Bitcoin on exchange platforms that have been hacked. I was in a hack of a platform called Bitfinex a long time ago. I was also in a hack of a platform called Cryptopia. The most recent one I was involved in wasn't a hack. It was technically an extremely clever exploit of a trading system that had a vulnerability in its design. It was, it was a platform called Mango Markets, and that was exploited. And in each case, I lost some amount of funds. It was not a catastrophic amount of funds. The best practice in anything involving cryptocurrency is to self-custody your assets in a wallet that is not connected to the internet and is stored in a secure location. The next level of upgrading that is to have a multi-signature wallet so that even if one of your wallets is compromised, multiple wallets would have to be compromised. And so after a few hacks or exploits, you learn to manage your risk very well. Thankfully, I did not lose any catastrophic amount of money in any of those hacks. And more recently, actually, in 2022, there were five or six catastrophic bankruptcies within the cryptocurrency ecosystem. The one you're probably most familiar with is an exchange called FTX, Sam Bankman-Fried. So Sam Bankman-Fried committed fraud to the tune of $8 billion, where he was effectively using all of the user funds that were deposited on his exchange as his own personal investment fund and piggy bank. And so 2022 was an unusual year in that more user funds were lost in cryptocurrency bankruptcies and exchange failures than there were in hacks. It's definitely scary. 
there's a lot to be worried about. There's a lot of ways you can lose your funds, but there are also a ton of resources out there that can teach you how to protect yourself. If you're out there listening and you're looking to secure your assets in the most secure way, a multi-signature cold storage wallet, look up how to do it. There's a number of great services like Unchained Capital here based in Austin. They offer a great multi-signature solution that I use, which is fantastic. If you can't do a multi-signature, then do a, a hardware wallet with the cold storage solution. That's the second best behind a multi-signature. How about cold wallet? What are those, Jamie? Tell me. A hot wallet is a wallet that's connected to the internet. A cold wallet is a wallet that's not connected to the internet. So technically, with a hot wallet, a hacker could be able to get into your device and steal your funds. In a cold wallet, a person needs to actually be in physical possession of the device in order to access your funds. A hot wallet is a, a wallet that is connected to the internet. A cold wallet is a wallet that is not connected to the internet. So with a hot wallet, if somebody is able to access your device, then they could theoretically move your funds and steal them. With a cold wallet, the only way to access the funds is to physically access the device because they're not accessible through the internet. Sounds like losing Bitcoin is a nightmare. You know, I don't own any Bitcoin. Should I buy it? Is it too late? Yes, you should buy Bitcoin. It's never too late. I think that there's still upside left in an investment in Bitcoin. If I wanted to buy it, where would I go? Well, the most reputable platforms to buy actual Bitcoin in the United States are Coinbase and Kraken. Like from Pirates of the Caribbean, Kraken? Oh my God, this is really just a bunch of nerds getting money and not having to deal with the government. That's what it sounds like. Yeah, I, well, I'm not particularly sure where the name Kraken came from, but of course, it is likely a pirate reference. Kraken is one of the oldest, most trusted exchanges. The CEO of Kraken is a guy named Jesse Powell. He's a very old school, longtime Bitcoin guy. He's been fighting the government for a long time. He's a G. So yeah, Coinbase and Kraken would be the two platforms that I would recommend. Coinbase is the largest cryptocurrency platform in the United States. It's actually a publicly traded company, so you could buy Coinbase stock if you wanted to. And now you can actually buy a Bitcoin ETF. If you just have a Robinhood account or Ameritrade account or Schwab, whatever, if you have a platform that allows you to buy stocks or you have an investment advisor who you can call and he can buy stocks for you, then you can now buy Bitcoin in an ETF form and it's a great product. They have very low fees, but you're not able to self-custody it. So you don't own the real thing. You have somebody who owns it on your behalf and they charge you a fee. If you're going to buy a Bitcoin ETF, I recommend that you buy the Fidelity Bitcoin ETF because Fidelity has been a longtime innovator and contributor to the Bitcoin ecosystem, and they have their own very secure self-custody system for their Bitcoin ETF. So if you're going to pick one, I recommend the Fidelity one. How much does Bitcoin cost right now, and how often does that cost fluctuate? I feel like sometimes I Google it, and oh, it's it's this much, and it's like, oh, okay, I could buy a Bitcoin for the price of my house. I could buy a Bitcoin for the price of a car. It just seems like monopoly money to me. I got a notification on PayPal, and I was like, oh, if you buy like a dollar worth of cryptocurrency through PayPal, we will double. It was, it was some sort of, I think it was like PayPal is trying to get involved in cryptocurrency. So I was like, okay, I'll try it. And immediately I lost the very little I invested in it. It was not a lot. My mom listens to my podcast. It was like $5, not very much money at all. But that kind of soured me. I was like, okay, I don't understand it. I don't want to invest a substantial amount of any money I earn into this. Do you still have it? I don't know. I haven't checked it. I don't care. I just, it was a very limited amount of money. I just... Check it. 
I'm, I don't, I don't want to do that. I just have no interest in buying it. I'm going to be honest, as we're talking about this, and it's such a fascinating topic, the likelihood of me buying cryptocurrency, any form of it, any investment in it, I'm just not going to do it because I don't trust it. I don't have any understanding of it. I don't really care to. Am I going to get left behind? No, you, you'll probably be fine. There are plenty of ways to store value within the United States economy that are available to people here. People in the United States have pretty strong access to financial services, investment platforms, high quality investment opportunities. If you had a brokerage account here over the last 20 years, you could have participated in the growth of Tesla, Meta, Facebook. Google, NVIDIA. There are amazing companies here that if you invested your savings into them, you would have done very well. You would have outperformed monetary debasement and the effects of money printing. So you're not going to get left behind. But I think technically you didn't lose money on your Bitcoin investment unless you sold it. You need to sell it in order to lose your money on it. And right now, Bitcoin is trading $48,000 per Bitcoin. You can also buy fractions of a Bitcoin. So you could go and buy $10 of Bitcoin and anybody can invest whatever amount of money that they have or determine it is a good fit for them into Bitcoin. It's not limited only to people who can buy one Bitcoin for $48,000. But what I will say is the highest price that Bitcoin's ever been was just under $70,000. I will say if you did buy Bitcoin sometime in the past and you didn't sell it and you still have it, it's trading $48,000 today. It's still in your possession. So the only way you can lose money on Bitcoin is if you buy it for a higher price than where you sell it. You don't lose money until you realize a loss, just like any other asset. It is a relief to know I'm not going to get left behind. Can anyone buy cryptocurrency? Can a convicted felon buy cryptocurrency? Are there any reasons why people would not be able to buy it? No. So Jamie actually added a maintenance question, and we had this conversation. Jamie added, would Bitcoin be successful in the United States and other countries if they had not abandoned the gold standard? Paige Harriman responded, this is a wish fulfillment question. I will ask it if I can say you wanted to include it. Jamie responded, when I talk about Bitcoin to non-Bitcoin native audiences, I try to give the context of why instead of going on like a Bitcoin ranting lunatic. When the United States abandoned the gold standard in the 60s, it paved the way for the outstanding quantity of money to grow from $300 billion to $2,100 billion and increase the 70x. This is why we have inflation now and is also responsible for income and wealth inequality. Bitcoin would not need to exist were it not for this rapid money supply growth. So it is important context. Paige responded, we can include it. So Jamie, would Bitcoin be successful in the United States and other countries if they had not abandoned the gold standard? And just for my listeners, what is the gold standard? So just to make a slight correction, money supply growth grew from 300 billion to 21,000 billion. And it's an increase of 70x. So over a period of 60 years, the outstanding quantity of money within the United States economy, which is known as M2, M2 is money supply, it grew by 70 times during that period. And the gold standard was a policy that used to be in place amongst world governments. Oh dear, Paige, they just spilled the mantra. This mantra is a catastrophe that keeps on spiraling multiple levels. First, it started with a controversy around me not wanting to drink a caffeinated beverage this late in the afternoon. It's currently 5.45 p.m. Central Time. Now, upon being forced to have the beverage, we've realized that 
Paige got a beverage that was too sweet, and it had whole milk in it. I don't drink milk. And the third catastrophic wheel is it's been spilled. We can, of course, edit this part out, but I think it's important that it be a part of the record. Look, Paige has a regular job that she works. She not hang out in West Texas. Oh, don't do that. Don't do that. If you, if you press it, it'll sing. You have to spray it, and then, yeah, it'll, it'll be fine. No, it's fine. It's not a big deal. My point is, I have a normal 9-to-5 job. So when we get interviews in the evening, I might be a little tired. I don't get to hang out in West Texas like a Bitcoin ranting lunatic. Your words, not mine. Picking up where I left off, the money supply growth from the 1960s to today was a factor of 70x increase. It means the amount of money circulating the economy increased by 70x. The way new money is created is as banks are allowed to borrow from the Federal Reserve at effectively the lowest rate of any borrower in the economy. And then they lend that money out into the economy for things like mortgages and business loans and, and all kinds of things like that. And so through this money supply creation through banks, the amount of money in the economy increased by 70x. And under the gold standard, the policy would have been that for each dollar created in new paper money that was going to be circulated in the economy, there would need to be an equivalent amount of gold in the Federal Reserve's accounts and vaults. And so that gold standard effectively meant that if the central bank of a country wanted to create a new dollar and put it into circulation, they would need to buy one new dollar of gold. So they actually have to spend money to create money and they have to go buy the gold from somebody. The abandoning of the gold standard effectively removed that limitation. And now if the Federal Reserve wants to go and create more dollars, they just add a zero in their computer system. There's a famous clip of a guy of a Federal Reserve official, I believe it's Ben Bernanke, who was chairman of the Federal Reserve for a while, just saying, yeah, we just go into the computer and we just add numbers to the total. We just add a little, you know, we add a zero or we add a one or we add a comma. And, you know, it's that easy for them to just increase the money supply. And the value of all the goods and services within an economy is a function of how much money is outstanding. So abandoning the gold standard really did pave the way for prices of things in America to go up way more quickly than they had prior to this period. And if we had not done that, there would not be as much of a compelling reason for Bitcoin to exist. It still would have a somewhat compelling use case because Bitcoin transactions are uncensorable and Bitcoin is unconfiscatable and Bitcoin can be sent across the world in a matter of minutes to anybody with an internet connection, which are still extremely valuable monetary properties. But its scarcity would not be as much of an important point against the backdrop of a fiscally and monetarily responsible government on the gold standard. How do you feel about the government? I think we talked about this a little bit earlier. I believe in a healthy balance of power between the people and the government. I believe that the government should serve the people and the government should be afraid of the people. Good government is accountable government. Bad government is government that the people are afraid of, where there's very little accountability and the abuse of institutional power and governmental power is a well-documented phenomenon within bad government. I think those things are the characteristics of bad government. The characteristics of good government is accountability and balance of power. In the United States currently, I believe we have a bad government. I believe we have a government that people are afraid of, that has very little accountability, and I think there's a relatively high level of corruption. And look, I mean, you look at the amount of money that is spent on presidential elections, it's probably one of the best 
investments that you can make as a business or a wealthy individual or a person with a particular agenda. If you donate a lot of money to political causes, you're not doing that to be ideological. You're doing that because you're going to expect something in return. And so the system right now feels very, very lacking in accountability, I will say. Let's say, you know, I've got X amount of Bitcoin in my wallet and I lose access to it and I just permanently lose access to it. I am never able to access it again. I forget the password. The computer breaks. Something happens. I just I can't get to it. What does that do to the supply chain? To the supply chain of Bitcoin? Yes. Nothing. It just removes those units from the circulating supply. It makes Bitcoin scarcer. If Bitcoin are lost, they're lost forever. And so there's fewer outstanding Bitcoin for anybody else to buy. So anytime somebody else loses Bitcoin, mathematically and economically speaking, it slightly benefits all the existing Bitcoiners who still have access to their Bitcoins. Is Bitcoin fully virtual and immaterial? Are there any physical representations of Bitcoin? I would say the Bitcoin network itself is fully virtual. And it's a digitally native concept where the majority of its functionality and its value is derived from its digitally native characteristics. There are three parts of Bitcoin that are native to the physical world, which are each important. Number one would be the physical devices that Bitcoin wallets are stored on. So a hardware wallet, a computer wallet, these are physical devices on which Bitcoin cryptographic keys are stored. And that is the conduit through which the network is accessed is some kind of computing device or computer connected device. The second physical component of Bitcoin is an actual Bitcoin node. So every computer that is connected to the network and running the Bitcoin software, as we talked about in the beginning, Bitcoin is a software. It's a monetary software that is distributed amongst all of the users. Every Bitcoin user is called a Bitcoin node. And that means that they have a physical computer in the real world. and It is a part of the network. And the third component of Bitcoin and we haven't talked about this yet at all, this is the largest manifestation of Bitcoin in the physical world is Bitcoin mining. And Bitcoin mining is effectively the world's largest lottery. A new lottery happens roughly every 10 minutes. In order to buy tickets to the lottery, miners, Bitcoin miners, have to spend small fractions of a watt of electricity for each ticket. And there are approximately 500 million trillion tickets that are purchased every second, and it takes about 600 seconds for a winning ticket to be found. So 500 million trillion times 600 is the number of tickets that are sold in this Bitcoin lottery. And the only way to buy a ticket is by using a small amount of electricity. The way that you win the lottery is as a part of your ticket, you have to submit a list of new transactions that are being proposed to be added to the Bitcoin network. So let's say I send Paige some Bitcoin right now. The first thing that happens is it gets broadcasted up into a waiting list. And the waiting list is where transactions sit before they get added to the global ledger of Bitcoin transactions, which contains every single Bitcoin transaction that's happened since the beginning of Bitcoin on January 3rd, 2009. And so I send Bitcoin, it goes into this mempool, which is a waiting list area. Miners take transactions from the mempool and they organize them in the correct chronological order. And that effectively forms the template for their lottery ticket. In the event that they hit the lottery, which is very hard, there are millions of mining computers all over the world that are attempting to win this guessing game, this lottery. In the event that a miner wins the lottery, then the version of new transactions organized in the correct chronological order that they pose to the Bitcoin network is it becomes the next link in the chain. It becomes the next added block to the entire transaction history of Bitcoin. 
And immediately after that, every Bitcoin miner tries to disprove them because they won the guessing game first. And if they have told an incorrect chronological version of the new transactions and another miner disproves them, then it is effectively like that version of the history never happened. The previous guessing game that a miner who had won that lottery thought they had won, it actually never existed. The system of mining works because every miner has this strong incentive to tell the truth. Every other miner has a strong incentive to disprove a miner who isn't telling the truth. And each participant, as they do this proving and disproving, they're effectively constantly expending quantities of electricity. So it costs money to participate in the game. And it is through this global game that all these miners are playing and competing against each other that the system works without a central authority orchestrating thing. It's this constant push and pull of proving and disproving that costs a small amount of electricity. And electricity is, of course, a globally available commodity that can be generated anywhere and is generated in every country. So it is this global commodity input into this massive lottery guessing game. And this is the core functionality of how the system works without a central authority. Now, what a mining company's physical operations look like is very much like a data center. They have racks and racks of servers. There's expansive cooling equipment, electrical infrastructure that is transforming high voltage electricity into medium and low voltage electricity. Then there's fiber, networking infrastructure, internet access, satellites. Now, anything that you would see in a traditional data center exists in a Bitcoin mining data center. The key difference between regular data centers and Bitcoin mining data centers is that Bitcoin mining data centers tend to be located in areas where there are very few people because in areas where there are very few people, there's very little competition for power. If you look nationwide, the average cost of electricity that a consumer pays for electricity is about 16 cents per kilowatt hour. That's on average in the United States. Cormant, my company, we pay about 2.7 cents per kilowatt hour. The reason why we pay such a low price is because we're located about six hours west of Austin in the middle of the desert. You tend to find Bitcoin mining data centers in these remote corners of the world because, as I mentioned before, each guess at this every 10 minute Bitcoin lottery guessing game costs a small fraction of a watt of electricity. And so if you want to continue to play the game and be efficient and outcompete all the other miners, then the input cost of what you pay for electricity becomes extremely important. So you told me earlier, you think of people moving to Texas, to Florida, it's like people relocating their families during the gold rush. People who made the most money during the gold rush were people who sold picks and shovels. I actually remember when I was a kid, I read the story about a guy who opened up a shack with a bunch of equipment items for people to buy gold. Reportedly went into a town saloon, I forget what it was, and he just started shouting, I've found gold, I've struck gold, I found gold, just repeatedly, and sold all of his wares in a day. People get very addicted to the money rush. Let's say I did not want to buy Bitcoin or cryptocurrency. We have established that. I'm sorry, I'm not going to do it. If I like wanted to make money in it in some way, is that possible? You know, can I make money selling equipment? Can I make money selling items related to Bitcoin? Tell me. Absolutely. Yeah. Some of the best businesses involved with Bitcoin mining are actually the businesses that sell the Bitcoin mining computers themselves. Other industries that have benefited are electrical infrastructure companies, companies who make transformers and power distribution units, companies who make large network switches that can connect multiple devices to a single network. Also, people who generate power in regions where there is a very, very low price of power. In those regions now, there is more demand for that electricity because Bitcoin miners are located there. 
So Bitcoin mining definitely contributes to the economic bottom line of many, many ancillary supporting industries and other industries that directly serve Bitcoin mining. But what I will say about your gold rush analogy is that while in the particular gold rush and during that moment, the people who sold picks and shovels did very well and on average probably did better than the average gold prospector. What about the people who held on to it during the gold rush? That gold was worth under $20 an ounce. Gold is worth $2,000 an ounce now. And so if you are going to extract the commodity and then hold on to it based on the monetary properties that you perceive as valuable in that commodity versus the dollar or whatever currency that is the currency of the location of the gold rush, there's a long-term view on it that during the gold rush, all the gold got mined very quickly and the market became flooded with sellers of gold. And so everybody who thought they were going to sell their gold for a much higher price ended up having to sell it at a much cheaper price to somebody who said, okay, well, I'll just buy all the gold from you. That guy ended up doing pretty well. Bitcoin mining is extremely competitive. It's a good analogy to gold mining. But I think that the long-term prospects of Bitcoin as a monetary commodity are also a really valuable reason to be participating in the industry. Something that's so interesting to me about this is the more we talk about it, you know, when we explore a subject, you tend to have less foundational stuff to ask about. And this conversation we're having explain these very simple concepts to me. It expands into the spider web. I have hundreds more questions. There's just so much I want to ask you. At no point in undergrad, in grad school, in any class I've ever taken that had to do with money, that had to do with social sciences, was cryptocurrency ever brought up as a subject? I mean, you know, I've been out of school for a while now, but it's never been something that was really broached. What do you think schools should be doing about it? You know, what do you think our educational system should be teaching children about cryptocurrency? I feel like you're right. Like, it's here. We've got to get a hold on it. you got to do it. Tell me, what do you think? Well, in general, I think it would be useful for some students to be taught more practical things about life in school. No, 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 no rabbit hole. No rabbit hole into what you think about the educational system. I'm going to stop you there. Just, yeah, he says, I'm not going to be rabbit hole. I don't think so. So tell me, just in terms of cryptocurrency, K through 12, what would you suggest schools teach about it? Also, you know, if I were a parent and I wanted to get my child educated on the subject of cryptocurrency, what would I do? Obviously, I think that it's worth learning about, and there are so many extremely passionate Bitcoiners. This is the one thing that is that is so cool and neat about the Bitcoin community is that nobody is a paid employee. of Bitcoin has no marketing budget, and it does not pay anybody a salary. Every single person who adopts Bitcoin and uses Bitcoin, they do it voluntarily, and they join it of their complete free will. There are probably a hundred, maybe more, executive caliber individuals who will answer your unsolicited DMs on Twitter, and they do it all for free. All of these people are motivated by their passion for Bitcoin, and the same way that they have received knowledge from those who came before them, they then reciprocate it to those who come after them. And the whole system works. You know, it's quite like a mycelium, the underlying connective organism of the mushroom, which is this broad system of nodes that all protect and look after each other and the organism functions as a massive collective, even though it's made up of all these different nodes that go out of the ground. You know, those are mushroom spores. Underneath that is this connective mycelium organism that links it all together. There's a great article by a guy named Brandon Quidham called Bitcoin is a Mycelium. And he actually goes through a comparison of why Bitcoin is quite like a mycelium. My favorite article 
for learning about Bitcoin is called The Bullish Case for Bitcoin. That is a great one. There's a guy in Austin named Parker Lewis, who's on the board of directors of Unchained, that wallet company. He's got a book called Gradually Then Suddenly. It's also available as an article. He does a ton of free education. There's so many great resources out there. If you look around just a little bit or ask a few questions, it's very easy to educate yourself. All you got to do is have the will to do so. If I wanted to learn more about cryptocurrency and get started in it, to me, it's just such a wild card currency. It just feels like a wild card subject. You know, one of my friends posted on Instagram several years ago that one of her friends gifted her Bitcoin when it you know, first became widely available to the public and she had forgotten about it. She just, you know, had it, forgot about it. She logged in. Do you know how much money was in the account from this little gift her friend got her? Probably bought it for like $15. Guess how much money it had shot up to. I remember the exact number because I looked at it and I was like, oh my God, what was I thinking? Thought, oh my God, I don't want to get involved with it. Should have gotten involved with it. Guess how much money it was. What year was it? Oh, I don't even remember. I just remember the dollar amount. 10 grand. Actually, pretty close. $8,137. She was living in San Francisco, so that lasted her like two weeks there. She was probably given that gift sometime between 2013 and 2016. Probably. It's not important. Talked a lot about Bitcoin, what it is, how you use it, how you buy it, how you sell it. When did it actually start? There is technically a founder of it. I as everybody has, have read that he's not actually a person, it's an entity. No one knows where he is. He's got a lot of Bitcoin. It's just locked up someplace. Satoshi Nakamoto. Who is this guy and what is your theory on who he is and where he is now? Well, I think you're making a mistake there, Paige, in assuming that it was a man. No, 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 no. You're not doing this to me. I am just assuming that it was probably a group of men and I don't think I'm wrong in that assumption. But, you know, it could be. It could be. I could post this episode, have someone get two hours in, and then get really angry at me on the internet, in which case, I'm sorry, I'm just a person. I do suspect it was started by a man, but I could be wrong. Tell me. Yeah. Actually, you know what? No, someone wanted to stay anonymous and not get credit, so you're right, it probably was a woman. Ha! <laughs> All right, that's funny. I do agree with you. It was most likely a man or a group of men. However, there's a very maternal energy in the conception of Bitcoin. There's a very selfless energy towards the creation, which feels extremely maternal to me, at least. The creator of Bitcoin was a person or group of people that went by a pseudonym of Satoshi Nakamoto, which is a Japanese combination of words that don't necessarily mean anything. Satoshi means wise, and Nakamoto doesn't mean anything in particular as far as I know. Satoshi Nakamoto published the Bitcoin White Paper, which is a less than 10-page document that outlines the technical structure and the premise for Bitcoin. And that was in October of 2008. And then on January 3rd, 2009, the Bitcoin protocol was launched when Satoshi mined the first block, so the first transactions on the network. There were no transactions, but the first block was mined by Satoshi on January 3rd, 2009. For the first two years or so of its existence, it was not widely used or widely adopted. It was this obscure thing, this obscure distributed software. And it started to become more widely used in 2011 and 2012. 2013 was the year when I think it really had its first massive surge of adoption when some financially minded people discovered it. 
in those early days, the community was mostly libertarian, and there were a lot of anarchists in there who came to know Bitcoin because they came from predecessor technology groups that were the contributing technologies that made up Bitcoin. These people are known as cypherpunks. I don't know where the name cypherpunk comes from, but I do know what a cypherpunk is. A cypherpunk, not cyberpunk? Would you consider yourself a cypherpunk? No, I'm not. A cypherpunk is a person who is incredibly knowledgeable about encryption, distributed systems, secure computing environments, and they are effectively people who are working together to build the tools that maintain anonymity and privacy and personal freedom on the internet. So they've invented things like PGP keys, which are a way of encrypting email and verifying authenticity of an email through a very secure set of cryptographic keys. There were a few predecessor forms of digital money. One was called Hashcash. That was where the concept of Bitcoin mining came from, was from this form of money called Hashcash invented by a guy named Adam Back. And so Adam Back, a guy named Nick Zabo, another guy named Hal Finney, and this guy Wei Dai, another guy named Chom, all these cypherpunk guys were exchanging ideas and building the tools to maintain a private and anonymous internet leading up to the years of Bitcoin's creation. And none of these systems really took off and took hold. None of them gained wide adoption. But the theory, and I think it's a pretty compelling theory, is that one of these computer science innovators or a group of them went through the process of doing an analysis on the systems they had made and an analysis of the flaws and successes of those systems. And then they inevitably reached the idea of Bitcoin, which had a breakthrough. It built on top of a few technological breakthroughs that came before it. And then the key breakthrough of the system was really its decentralized nature, meaning that there was no Bitcoin incorporated that started Bitcoin. It was just this pseudonymous person or group of people named Satoshi Nakamoto. He started running some software on his computer. He sent a Bitcoin white paper and the links to the software. So this person, Satoshi Nakamoto, sent the link to the Bitcoin white paper in a short white paper describing the concept, and he sent the software to this group of people to a mailing list of a few cypherpunks, and Satoshi Nakamoto was the first one who was running the Bitcoin software. A guy named Hal Finney was the second one who ran the software, and then shortly thereafter, the other folks from this group of people began running the software. And they were publicly identifying their involvement. They were posting on forums using their real names. But none of them ever came out and said, I am Satoshi Nakamoto. There have been people who fraudulently claim that in the last decade or so. But the identity of Satoshi Nakamoto remains unknown. And I believe that it is deliberate that the identity of Satoshi Nakamoto not remain known. And that the core premise of Bitcoin being a decentralized distributed software system that is not owned or controlled by a single person was acknowledged to be the most important characteristic of the system in the early days by these cypherpunks. And it would make sense that one of them or a group of them created it and they created this pseudonymous figure of Satoshi Nakamoto with the plan of having this figure disappear at some point. And Satoshi Nakamoto disappeared sometime in 2011 when the government started to pay attention to Bitcoin. Satoshi has never reappeared, and the coins that Satoshi mined have never been moved. They're sitting there. It's worth about $50 billion today, and he has about a million Bitcoins. So Satoshi Nakamoto does own 4% of the world's Bitcoin, but I am not Satoshi Nakamoto, and, and nobody knows who Satoshi Nakamoto is.
Very interesting, 4%. What if like, your friend was playing some sort of elaborate joke on me when he told me you own 4% of the world's Bitcoin? He was. So people who own cryptocurrency and we're going to like to bully women. That's not a surprise. I could have told you that even before we started the podcast episode. Very interesting. So who do you think this person is? Think he's a one person? Do you think he's a group? Do you think he's ever going to come back? No, I don't think Satoshi will ever return. I think it's a one to three person group. I think there's a chance they're still involved in Bitcoin, but they're doing it under their real world identity. They'll never return as Satoshi. Do you think they're like a band or an improv group that just had a falling out? I just feel like the personalities of people who work in cryptocurrency and own cryptocurrency, I could totally see people who are like this walking away from a ton of money out of just sheer principle. Like, I don't want to work with you guys. We're all not going to touch it for a while. What do you think? What do you think happened? Just your theory. I don't believe there was a dispute. I think that whoever Satoshi Nakamoto was, they definitely accumulated a whole lot of Bitcoins in their own individual name, and they are fine. Satoshi Nakamoto, the individual or group of people that it represents, is likely extremely wealthy, never has to work again. And also, the type of invention that this person made, or this group of people made, it's extremely altruistic, and it's a benevolent technology that benefits the entire species, and then they voluntarily disappeared. This doesn't strike me as the type of person who's particularly financially motivated or petty. I mean, this is a massive gesture that this person has abandoned a $50 billion fortune for what they perceive to be the greater good of the species. This doesn't strike me as a petty person or one who's purely financially motivated. Do you think they're American? There's some evidence that suggests that it was a person who was taught the English language in the style of the United Kingdom. They spell the words color with an O-U and flavor with an O-U. You know, they do the O-U in those words. Also, the person lived in Pacific time in the United States. Somebody did an analysis of the posts that Satoshi Nakamoto made on the early Bitcoin servers, and they picked up those spelling characteristics and the time zone. You believe whoever this person is. must be very altruistic to have created Bitcoin for people and for others. We have talked at great length about how people are in cryptocurrency primarily because they hate the government. What if this group did this as a giant f you to governments everywhere? I think it's a bit of a false dichotomy. Whether or not a person is involved in philanthropy is not necessarily the only indicator of whether or not they're altruistic. Allow me to propose a historically contextualized question. Imagine that you're living in medieval England or any time period where the integration of the church and state is the dominant governing philosophy of the time and the rulers of whatever government rule by divine right. And you saw Martin Luther or other historically revolutionary figures rebelling against that authority and pushing it to become better. You know, Martin Luther famously hung up his 95 theses about corruption and abuse within the church around the selling of indulgences and a number of other grievances, and that drove the Protestant Reformation. It's credible to make the case that a technology like Bitcoin paves the way for a similar transition in social organization and governance where it restores the balance of power, it rights injustices that may be occurring. 
I think the evidence points to Satoshi being an altruistic person who gave a wonderful gift to the species and disappeared without extracting economic benefit where he or they could have done so. I think that the characterization of Bitcoin as a bunch of shady, selfish people living in a dark basement and breaking the law on the internet, it's tempting, but Bitcoin is now held by over 90 million people globally. They're regular people. Its ownership is primarily concentrated in the demographic of people who are under 40 years old. These are people who own the fewest amount of assets in the economy. 90% of the assets in the global economy are controlled by people who are 65 and older. I think Bitcoin is hope. Bitcoin is freedom. Bitcoin is the technology that restores the balance of power between the government and the people, and it's progress. And I would resist the temptation to misclassify it as something that it is not, despite headlines and stories that you may read of one-off examples to the contrary. Yeah, just to be clear, I don't think people who work in cryptocurrency are basement trolls. I just mean that the people I've met who work in cryptocurrency tend to be what you would think of, you know, when you think of a traditional libertarian, which is that they protect their people, they protect their homes, they protect their environments, but they hate the government and they don't really get involved with philanthropy at large. When you go to cryptocurrency conferences, you know, when you speak at them, which you've done watched all the talks I could find of you on YouTube. It's very interesting the types of people that go there. It's mostly men. I mean, I, of course, note that there are women who work and are in cryptocurrency. What do you think about that? I think that the reason why you see more men in these communities than women is due to a few factors. Number one, the disciplines in terms of study that lead to an interest or an exposure in this are fields that largely attract men. Secondly, I think it involves risk. And for the same reason why startups are more likely to be founded by men than women by the numbers, the reason being that men are more comfortable to take risk because for a man to take risk and then reap the reward is more likely to give him successful outcomes, especially with regard to women. Women do tend to favor men who have resources, whereas men do not tend to discriminate against selecting a partner who is a woman and does not have resources. That's just kind of the way that it is. And that's why you see, you know, many not so handsome men who maybe have a nice house and a nice job and can provide some security and take care of a family with a very beautiful wife. That doesn't necessarily make sense, but these are the sexual attraction and sexual selection preferences of our species. So I think that the risk of getting involved in Bitcoin, which is a risky sector, it's a volatile asset. It can be easily stolen and hacked. You read stories about that happening all the time. That is something that will be less daunting to a man than a woman because the promise of being early to a potentially lucrative investment is much more telling for a man. And lastly, to address your third point, women in the Bitcoin community are incredible. There are a number of writers and podcast hosts and company founders and senior executives. The CFO of our company is woman. There are a number of prominent executives within the whole ecosystem of cryptocurrency companies that are female. And some of our best writers as an industry and thinkers are, are also women. And I actually believe that the likelihood of a woman's voice, opinion, writing, research, contributions being meaningful is much higher as a Bitcoiner than an average man because of their underrepresentation in the ecosystem. And so I think that they do get championed. 
the ratio of prominent female Bitcoiners versus non-prominent female Bitcoiners versus the male counterparty because there's so much more of a competing voice on the male side. And so I don't think it's any deliberate singling out. However, I will make the caveat that the concept of inclusivity as a mandate, which is a very new concept in America, in DEI, that is something that many Bitcoiners will reject on its premise. Because for better or worse, and I, I could make the case for the good and the bad of it, I do think diversity of opinion and diversity of gender, race, and ethnicity amongst leadership teams and groups leads to higher quality of thought. I do believe that, and I believe that at my core. However, DEI also gets mixed in with the school of thought that is oriented towards trying to engender equality of outcome instead of equality of opportunity. You want groups to be represented by diverse sets of people as a policy and not as a naturally occurring phenomenon, whereas most Bitcoiners would say the most important thing is that everybody be entitled to equality of outcome when a government, corporate organization, political structure, or any kind of organization attempts to engender equality of outcome, Bitcoiners are going to be extremely resistant to that. Because Bitcoiners tend to be conservative, traditional thinkers, and they would prefer to see a more natural order of things rather than an imposed equality of outcome, quota-based, statistically determined outcome. So that, that is my answer to that question. You know, my podcast title is called I Don't Know Anything, but I knew that was going to be your answer. We are coming up on time, so it's some thoughts on this subject, but I'm not going to share them here. Let's talk about something you mentioned a little bit earlier in your answer. Something I have found very interesting about Bitcoin and the greater cryptocurrency field for a long time. It sure has given some argumentative, government-hating men a lot of money. I have met many of them. And they are in relationships with or married to beautiful women, and they are having lots of children. The dot-com bubble is thought to have partially increased the percentage of babies born with ASD, as men on the spectrum became wealthier and were able to attract more reproductive partners. It's one of five main causes of autism spectrum disorder. It's very interesting. Look at Elon Musk. He is tall, I guess, but I do not think he would have been able to have so many children with so many beautiful women if he'd been born like in the 1920s. I mean, this guy, he's got what, like 50 kids, like 11 that you know of. I'm not going to speculate because I don't want to get in trouble on the internet. What do you think the impact on future generations will be of these men having children? Do you think we will see an increase of children with specific developmental or personality disorders? I, I don't necessarily know that those things are hereditary, but what I will say... Yes, developmental and personality disorders are hereditary. It depends on early exposure to pollution, to childhood trauma. There are a lot of factors that can make something worse, but if you're affected by schizophrenia, it's because you're born with it. Fortunately, so much of our life is decided or just in our mother's wombs and in the first two years of our life. Actually, a significant amount of who we are as adults is determined the first two years of our life. Which also brings me to another point. These men who are having lots of children are having them on farms away from everybody because they hate the government. Just tell me, what do you think is going to happen? What are these children of these crypto... I don't know what term to call them. Crypto gazillionaires. They probably like that term. I feel like that's not an offensive term for them. What do you think is going to happen? 
Well, I honestly believe that people with those personality disorders and personality types are better suited to a more engineering-focused world where quantitative skills, software development, statistics, physics, science skills, those are the most valuable skills in the economy. And it is potentially an evolution in the species that women are selecting those men to reproduce with because those are the men who have the most resources. So let's compare the previous archetype of what a woman would historically have been attracted to, and obviously still is to this day, versus this new archetype that's been more emergent in the last century. You have a large, strong, athletic, dominant alpha male. This has historically been the male archetype that has had access to the most willing female reproductive partners. Why is that being selected now in a time where physical security, which is arguably the characteristic that is being sought by the female in choosing a larger and stronger male partner, physical security is no longer an imminent concern for the species. We're governed by law and order. There's access to weapons, which can turn the weakest person into the strongest person, no matter what the size or strength of an adversarial person is. So, I would flip the question on its head and say, instead of questioning where sexual selection is delivering different reproductive outcomes today than it was, say, 100 or 200 years ago, perhaps we should examine where those outcomes were ending up centuries ago and say, hey, you know, this kind of looks like progress. This kind of looks like an adaptation on the behalf of women, where it's a rational choice to be procreating with a man who is going to potentially deliver offspring that are much more suited and likely to have the skills that lead to thriving and prosperity in today's modern technologically integrated world where physical safety concerns are significantly diminished. Yeah, I have some opinions on that. What, what are your opinions, Paige? Amy, my podcast only has three rules. Drink a latte, which you didn't answer all my questions, which you have not, and don't ask me any questions. So I would probably guess, just to answer honestly, that it's not funny. It's probably going to screw up the world. Oh ho, Jamie and I had a very long and very interesting conversation about the subject. For a myriad of reasons, it wound up on the cutting room floor. Now, back to the show. I think that cryptocurrency for a lot of these particular people, fulfills what's known as a Japanese word called ikigai. And ikigai is a, it's like a Venn diagram, but it has four circles instead of two. And typical Venn diagram has two concepts on the right and left circle, and then there's an overlap in the middle, and it presents some kind of conceptualization of the overlap between two ideas. And ikigai is four preset circles, and then the ikigai in the center is the point in which maximum fulfillment exists in a particular vocation. The four circles are what you're good at, what you can be paid for, what the world needs, and what you like doing. Those are the four circles. So what you're good at, what you can be paid for, what the world needs, and what you enjoy doing. Many of my friends and my coworkers, for us, we all represent a particular skill set in this Ikigai diagram. Some feel more strongly than others about Bitcoin being what the world needs 
I feel particularly strongly about it. It feels like I'm working on something that is meaningful. I love to be a part of a developing technological ecosystem, especially one that is virtuous and fair. I think fairness is an important virtue. And Bitcoin is arguably one of the fairest technologies that has ever existed in that there's absolutely no barriers to entry. One thing I've learned, this is the third business that I've started. I've been lucky enough that my previous two businesses were successful. The one thing that I've learned is that there is very little gratification in victory. There's a great quote by a comic book author named Neil Gaiman from his comic book series, The Sandman. And the quote is, the problem with getting what you want is having got what you once wanted, which is after you're pursuing a goal for a long time, there's an emptiness when you actually achieve it. And the lesson from that quote is that You have to make sure you're enjoying the journey. So if you're doing work that you don't love every day and you're doing that in order to achieve a goal, you're going to get to that goal and it's going to feel extremely empty. You're going to look back and be like, man, I really sacrificed to achieve that goal. And once I finally got there, it really didn't fulfill me at all. Cherishing the journey and living within the Ikigai framework or targeting a vocation that is within your Ikigai center point, which being a Bitcoin mining company CEO happens to be for me. That I think should be the goal. And then as a separate assignment, you have to contextualize amassing a fortune, not letting your wealth change you. In particular, raising children of means is a challenge. I would like to end with a Kanye West quote, which is, I get to say whatever I want. It's a great quote. It's a good quote. The quote is, look, this was before the anti-Semitic stuff. And it's just a quote. Pretend like he didn't say it. Kanye says, having money is not everything. Not having it is. And that's a really profound quote because what he's telling you is that if you become rich and that happens to you, you're lucky enough to become rich. It's not everything. In fact, it could probably make your life more complicated and create a whole bunch of new problems that you have to figure out how to solve and deal with. But not having prosperity is an obsession. And it is something that people become particularly fixated on. And the struggle for prosperity and success is inherent in American culture. We have a culture of careerism and success orientation here. And you know it may not be for everyone, but for people like me who enjoy competing and enjoy teamwork and really enjoy the journey of doing that, it is. And I would like to believe that you know, people like us are not necessarily the sign of the apocalypse just because we're, we're making money and being successful. It's all about contextualization. The problem with recording on a microphone is it is very hard to grab away from someone when they're saying something by Kanye West. Now, just to be clear, people I've met in cryptocurrency, I don't think they're bringing an apocalypse. I don't think it's bad that they're having a lot of children. I just think it has some interesting implications for the society we're going to see moving forward. It's so interesting. We've talked for three hours, and I have even more questions than I did when we started. But we're coming up on time. So thank you so much for being on my podcast. Are there any last words or maybe advice you'd give for someone who wants to get involved in cryptocurrency but is maybe a little scared and frightened and worried about losing all of their money? Well, don't, you know, don't invest more than you're willing to lose. And what I will say is the key part of the journey is starting. It's just like a diet or an exercise routine. Just take a baby step in and don't invest more than you're comfortable losing. You know, make a small investment if you're interested. Use the infrastructure, send a Bitcoin transaction, interact with with the technology and witness for yourself what its capabilities are. From there, you, if it's a good fit for you, you, you will learn, you will decide which parts of it appeal to you or you, you, know, you will leave it behind and uh, you become a hater and that's okay too. Just give it a try, be cautious, put one foot in and don't be afraid to ask for help. And 
Jamie is available by DM and is more than happy to act as a resource. If you have any questions about cryptocurrency or Bitcoin or his company or the government, Jamie, Jamie at... James McAvity at Twitter and Paige will put my Twitter handle in the show notes. Like I have show notes. Thank you so much for coming to my show, Jamie. It was very, very interesting. I feel like I got a TED Talk. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Like I got more than a TED Talk because it was actually educational. I feel like I got an original TED Talk, not like a TEDx talk. Talk about trashing your brand. TED Talk, back when TED Talk was actually educational. Thank you so much for coming on my show, Jamie. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure.